0: You are now listening to MacroDose. Hello and welcome to MacroDose, a podcast hosted by me, James Meadway, that brings you your weekly fix of everything economics in a quick 15-minute roundup. Each Wednesday morning, we bring you the key stories making the news and the analysis you need to make sense of them. On today's episode, we'll be taking a look at, first, a new investigation from the New York Times revealing the real-world damage caused by cryptocurrencies. Second, a quick look at economic turmoil in Sri Lanka. Are the IMF going to keep pushing economic crisis onto the Global South? And finally, the IMF says interest rates and inflation are going to come down. But do we believe them? Before we get started with today's show, just a brief note to say thank you to everyone who's subscribed to support this podcast on Patreon.com. To keep this project going over the longer term, we need your support. There are now thousands of you tuning into our Economics Roundup each week, and we greatly appreciate each and every one of you. But Patreon subscribers have access to all our macrodose extra content, including upcoming discussions with the theorist Gargi Bakhacharya on racial capitalism and Asad Raymond from War and Want on economic prospects for the Global South. If you head over to Patreon, subscribers will have access to all our Macrodose extra content, including the full-length interviews with economist Yanis Varoufakis and Labour journalist Sarah Jaffe. If you have the means, please consider supporting the show. You can find us at patreon.com macrodose. That's patreo dot com slash macrodose. On to our first story. This week, the New York Times published a detailed and revealing investigation into the real-world impacts of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Now, if you've had your fingers in your ears and have been singing loudly whenever anyone mentions Bitcoin over the last decade or so, I can hardly blame you. But to quickly recap, a cryptocurrency is a digital asset, intends to work as a medium of exchange, in other words, like a currency, through a computer network that is not reliant on a central authority like a government or a bank to uphold the value of the asset. You don't have a bank account that tells you how much your cryptocurrency is worth. The government doesn't tell you how much it wants from you in taxes and shoves a value onto the currency that you're holding. So, by decentralizing claims and value in this way, supporters of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin say they can provide a store for personal wealth that is theoretically beyond restriction and confiscation. In principle, a cryptocurrency could be completely anonymous in the same way as cash. So unlike a conventional bank account, which provides a register of transactions, or a central bank digital currency, a new kind of currency being developed by central banks in which you would hold a bank account with the Bank of England or the Bank of Japan or the People's Bank of China or whoever, and that would act as the currency that you use on a day-to-day basis. Over the last few years, particularly since the mid-2010s, there's been a huge amount of investment flowing into cryptocurrencies of various sorts. Bitcoin is the oldest and the most famous, but there's been a proliferation of these digital assets with some of the biggest institutions and wealthiest individuals on the planet sticking absolutely vast sums of money into cryptocurrencies. At the height of the boom in 2021, for example, Tesla was making more profit from its holdings of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin than it was from selling cars. Now, since then, the value of cryptocurrencies has basically crashed, impoverishing some luckless speculators and also revealing just an extraordinary amount of fraud and misselling, with the former crypto exchange FTX being the most notorious example here. But this isn't only something that happens in the immaterial digital world. What the New York Times investigation shows is just how much real world damage cryptocurrencies are doing. The problem comes from the so-called mining of bitcoins and other similar cryptocurrencies. The idea here is that to generate new bitcoins requires a massive amount of computing power applied to solving an equation that becomes progressively harder the more bitcoins are already in existence. The idea here is that this simulates the actual mining of precious metals, like gold or silver, which get used once upon a time to make traditional currencies. Bitcoins become harder to obtain once the easy seams have been mined, so to speak. So just like in the material world, there is supposed to be a scarcity control applied to the value of the cryptocurrency. The actual currencies we have today and that we use today, whether it's dollars or pounds or yen or whatever it might be, don't actually really work like this and haven't for really quite a long time. But historically, you did have currencies that were tied, however tenuously, to some precious metal, typically gold or silver, Bitcoin, other cryptocurrencies, provide a kind of digital version of that, or at least that's the theory, by having this principle of mining that becomes progressively harder the more currencies are in existence. So they simulate the scarcity through this process of algorithmically generating new cryptocurrencies. When the equation is confirmed by the network as being solved, the miner of that cryptocurrency is rewarded with another Bitcoin. At the time of writing, a single Bitcoin can be exchanged for around $28,000, so there's a significant incentive to generate the things. But this requires real number crunching to solve the algorithms, and that requires a great deal of computational power, which in turn requires a very large amount of energy. The US mining operations exposed by the New York Times demonstrated, amongst other things, the huge environmental damage being caused by the expansion of Bitcoin mining. They found vast compounds of specially cooled sheds hidden away in remote locations, which contained banks and banks of dedicated computers trying to grind through the algorithms necessary to generate a new coin. Each of the 34 operations identified by the New York Times used at least as much power as 30,000 American homes, and the biggest single mining operation, Riot Platforms at Rockdale, Texas, used the same amount of power as 300,000 homes. So in a shocking statistic, across the whole of the United States, crypto mining has added the equivalent of a second New York City's worth of demand for electricity. Now, this is relatively new to see this in the US on this scale. Up until 2021, most mining took place in China, where electricity at the time is very cheap and very abundant. Crypto farms could be found in other parts of the world where natural sources of energy were readily available, like Iceland, for example, which has both a ready supply of hydroelectric power and the double advantage of a cold climate to keep your computers cool. But most crypto mining in the 2010s was in China, with its cheap electricity. But since a clampdown by Chinese authorities in 2021, which cited, amongst other things, concerns about energy use, crypto miners are being driven out of the country. At this point, many operations moved to the US instead, where the Bitcoin mines have been guzzling electricity at a cracking pace. Calculations by Wood Mackenzie, the energy consultancy, suggest that mining in Texas alone has added 5% to household energy bills there, or about $1.8 billion a year, as crypto mining demand has pushed up the price of relatively scarce local electricity. And despite the claims of at least some crypto enthusiasts, that additional demand for electricity has been typically met by fossil fuels, with the Times estimating about 85% of US crypto mining depends on fossil fuel energy. The final twist in the madness is this. Because large parts of the US have been hit by extreme weather in recent years, demand for electricity has been very volatile. The extreme heat last summer, for example, drove up demand for air conditioning. To meet these spikes in demand, local electricity companies have negotiated deals with crypto miners that, in return for the miners shutting down their operations, something they can do pretty quickly. Essentially, they flick off a switch to turn off a computer, and they will be paid compensation. So in Texas, crypto miners have been paid $60 million by electricity companies just for the promise that they will shut down their operations when needed. When winter storms hit the state last year, knocking out power plants and so reducing electricity supply, one mining operation there was paid up to $125 million to keep its computers out of action. What you've got here is something that starts to look quite close to ecological blackmail. There are ways to make cryptos less ecologically disastrous. Ethereum, a later and more sophisticated version of the fundamental crypto technology, switched in September last year from the proof-of-work mining method, generating new tokens that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies use, to the idea of -of proof-of-stake, where an Ethereum owner can pledge a certain amount of their tokens as a guarantee they will properly validate new tokens in the whole cryptocurrency network. The result has been a more than 99% decrease in the amount of power Ethereum uses. Astonishingly, this reduction is estimated to be equivalent to the amount of electricity used by Austria. Now on the show last week I mentioned a peculiar little story in the Financial Times where one of Norway's biggest arms manufacturers was complaining about the electricity use of a nearby data centre, specifically blaming TikTok for using up the electricity it needed in a fairly obvious propaganda or PR spin on the story. Cryptocurrency is another version of the same issue. After decades in which energy in the developed world seemed to be cheap and plentiful, particularly relative to the amount of computing power that could be squeezed out of that energy, we are now placing such huge demands on our creaking energy systems that conflicts between different uses are moving from an occasional problem, in extreme circumstances, to a regular and increasing risk. If we all have to start thinking more carefully about how electricity is used in a world facing real and growing ecological constraints, it's extremely hard to justify a future in which a second New York City is guzzling up our energy supplies to fuel the production of pretend money. OK, on to our second story today, and I want to turn now to the turmoil in Sri Lanka, which I think is an instructive case for how our international financial institutions are pushing the risks of an unstable economy onto the shoulders of those in the Global South. Sri Lanka defaulted on its external debt in April last year, meaning that the government wasn't able to meet at least some of the repayments due on its debt held in foreign currencies. This was Sri Lanka's first default in its history, but it was only one amongst a number of developing countries that have defaulted since the outbreak of COVID-19, the latest being Ghana just last month. As I've mentioned before in this podcast, the IMF and World Bank reckon that 60% of low-income countries are in what they call debt distress, meaning that they are at risk of being unable to meet their loan obligations, with government debt in low-income countries more than doubling in the last decade, from $1.7 trillion in 2011 to $3.5 trillion in 2021. Unlike previous debt crises, the majority of this lending hasn't come from the traditional developed economy lenders or from multilateral official institutions like the IMF. As is well known, China has been a very major lender to the developed world, the largest single one since 2015 onwards, but India is now also a major lender to the rest of the developing world, bigger even than the United States in the last year. In Sri Lanka's case, huge loans from Chinese lenders helped pay for the redevelopment of Colombo's port, amongst other things. By 2020, almost 20% of Sri Lanka's $38 billion external debt was owed to Chinese institutions. But as Covid hit, critically damaging revenues from tourism whilst also provoking a huge domestic health crisis, Sri Lanka's uneasily balanced and increasingly indebted economy plunged into a deep crisis. Unpopular would-be reforms by the government and clear evidence of corruption resulted in the dramatic overthrow of the President and Prime Minister in June or so last year, following very large protests across the country. The President's Palace, as people might remember, was occupied by protesters at one point. A new government has promised to clean up the mess, as you might anticipate, but in practice, this has meant a fundamental subservience to Sri Lanka's many creditors, with the IMF now acting as the bailiff. Despite some friendlier noises from senior IMF figures in recent years, and a noticeable rhetorical shift against the old so called Washington consensus of neoliberalism and austerity. There seems to be a disconnect between the IMF's research department, for example, which has been an increasing critic of the free market plus spending cuts approach, and the actions of the IMF on the ground. The conditions of Lanka's loans are a pretty bog-standard IMF offer, familiar since the third world debt crisis of the 1980s at least, The money is given to a stricken government, but comes attached with very hefty strings. In this case, a demand for a primary surplus on government spending by 2024. And a fixation on getting the country plugged back into global capital markets as rapidly as possible. So with weary predictability, by demanding a primary surplus in particular, the IMF is prioritising the demands of creditors over a meaningful economic recovery. The implication of saying that the country must generate a primary surplus on its government spending is that it will be getting more in taxes than it spends into the economy once you take into account of interest payments. In other words, it's a recipe for austerity and quite severe austerity if you're aiming to do that by 2024. If Sri Lanka was to recover on a sustainable basis, rather than along the lines the IMF wants, so that's rapid repayment of debts, rapid access to international capital markets, and rapid restoration of tourism earnings, it will need to develop its domestic sectors, critically including food production, where the island has become increasingly dependent on imports. Breaking import dependency and a reliance on foreign sources of investment funding would mean operating a relatively loose domestic fiscal policy, so in other words, keeping spending relatively high, leaning taxes towards the rich rather than ordinary households, and looking to invest where possible. And from Sri Lanka's creditors, asking for a far more dramatic haircut on the loans, in other words, negotiating a significant reduction in the amounts that those creditors can expect to get back. This isn't what is currently happening. Instead, the immediate future for Schlenker looks like a number of years as a kind of zombie economy, kept alive by IMF loans, with the programme expected to run for the next four years, and then through very great efforts, the country is expected to try and repay its foreign creditors by running that primary surplus. Even if this works inside that four-year time frame that's envisaged, The result will be a population that has further impoverished itself to repay those creditors solely for the benefit of being allowed once again to borrow money internationally. It's a kind of futile exercise and one we've seen repeatedly in the last 40 years or so without any serious indication that the IMF is prepared to do anything other than act, especially for developing countries, as the major creditors bailiff, now including major creditors from other global South nations like China and India. The alternative is initially hard but achievable that Sri Lanka needs a government prepared to negotiate seriously for a haircut on its external debt and that is prepared to act in support of the domestic economy, raising taxes on its elite whilst keeping ordinary household incomes as high as possible to support consumption. Of course, Sri Lanka's domestic elite won't necessarily like that very much, which is why you end up with these unholy alliances between the IMF, the creditors and Sri Lanka's own domestic elite. But that, in outline, is what a genuine plan for recovery would take. Otherwise, the IMF doom loop will be very hard to escape from. And the outlook for the next few years is, frankly, something like misery for most Sri Lankans. But this is exactly why the case study of Sri Lanka matters and why we should all be paying attention to it. If our global institutions, like the IMF and the World Bank, stick to their course and force through harsh and unworkable neoliberal conditionalities, even when so many around the world are abandoning this basically defunct economic orthodoxy, we will simply see the brutal costs of our economic turmoil meted out again and again, And pushed onto the shoulders of those in the global south. It means that those on the front lines of the crisis will be those who can least afford to pay for it. Sticking with the IMF for our third and final story, I want to zero in on one specific claim made by the fund's in-house economists this week. that interest rates and inflation are likely to come down to pre-COVID levels. This has already attracted a fair bit of attention since the announcement yesterday, and it's been presented as a relatively good news story, that price rises will no longer be destroying real earnings, and that those mortgages or other borrowing will find life much easier as interest rates come down. But there's a sting in the tail. It's because the IMF expects growth to be low in the future, that they also expect interest rates to be low. The IMF economists say that, I quote, when inflation is brought back under control... Advanced economy central banks are likely to ease monetary policy and bring real interest rates back towards pre-pandemic levels. The important word to note here is when. This should, of course, be an if. If inflation is brought back under control, then of course we could reasonably expect interest rates to come back down again. But why should we expect inflation to be brought under control? By which the IMF economists mean back down to the kind of pre-COVID levels of around 2% or so. Sure, inflation is likely to come down a bit this year as the effects of last year's huge surge in energy costs washes through the system. But it's not very clear why you might anticipate that this will mean inflation returning to the low levels we saw across the developed world from the 1990s through to COVID. The fact is that helped drive up inflation over the last sort of 18 months or two years or so are all still in operation. In addition to the shock of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there is the ongoing ecological crisis. Only last week, reports of a dry spell in Canada were threatening wheat harvests there, reducing expected future supplies and threatening to drive up prices still further. As ecological instability worsens, it will get harder and harder to do some fairly basic economic things like growing and eating food because we have a system in which a few companies are able to exploit those shortages, turning problems in supply rapidly into their own mega-profits, there is a ratchet effect on prices in general, so that shortages or difficulties supplying food turn into rising food prices, which then become higher profits for food suppliers, but being generally higher inflation and therefore worse cost-of-living crisis for everyone else. Isabella Weber and Avon Vasner had a very useful paper on this effect out last month demonstrating how this mechanism works. I'll be talking to Isabella in a couple of weeks about her work on in inflation. But the idea that the natural world can affect prices is something the economic mainstream, like the IMF, seem to be incapable of taking account of. Instead, the IMF economists talk rather bizarrely about a natural level of interest rates. Now, there's no such thing. There's nothing natural about the level of interest rates. These are socially determined. And it is on to revive this very old idea in economics at precisely the point when nature, actual nature, is becoming increasingly important for what happens in the human economy. So the forecasts I'm going to suggest are likely to prove wrong, since they're talking about a world in which economies stabilise around so-called natural rates and ignoring the clear and worsening evidence of fundamental instability. Inflation is likely to remain not only higher than we have been used to, on average, but also more unstable prices oscillating far more than they have in the past as ecological crises and other geopolitical instabilities hit us. We will need different policies to cope with this. More use of controls on selected prices, more use of industrial policy and investment in critical sectors like food production, and more support for household incomes like better trade union organisation and higher minimum wages. Thank you for listening to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon at patreon.com macrodose.